speaking of nights going to be everywhere as you know him to be a local organizer and a driver within SEIU Local 221. Uh, I do want to remind everyone that tonight's talk is being recorded so it can be posted online. As the title of tonight's talk suggests, Avery will be covering some of the relationships between police unions and the behavior of law enforcement. After the topic of law enforcement, we'll be covering the ways by which the U.S. Armed Forces are used as a tool to expand and exploit capital markets and what happens when subordinates organize and gain a collective consciousness outside of the chain of command. So Avery, whenever you're ready. Okay, thanks, Victor. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. So the title of the talk is Unions, Police, and the Military. I will spend about two-thirds talking about the police and then move on to the military, more to shed light on how we understand the police. Victor has a video clip during the part. As none other than Drusilla recently pointed out, the fact that police have unions discredits our union and unions in general, because those who see that the police inflict racist violence and carry out the actual arrests leading to mass incarceration in the country with 25% of the world's prisoners, but only 6% of its population, those people resent the role of police unions as the most militant defenders of this status quo. In many previous labor history talks, we have seen how solidarity between different groups of workers and between different unions is necessary for us to win. At the same time, we have seen how the U.S. labor movement has made its greatest gains by fully championing any and all movements for social justice, above all, anti-racist movements. But the historic Black freedom struggle, especially the Black Lives Matter protests since 2014 and the movement to defund law enforcement in the last year, stand directly opposed to police unions. So what should we do? The key is understanding the function of police within capitalism, because capitalism requires a healthy investment climate, which requires that on average investment makes a profit. Investors must be able most of the time to get more than they paid for. They must be able to get something for nothing. And that is only possible if labor on average is paid less than the value of the products or services we create. That is called exploitation. Even those of us in the public sector who do not create products or services for sale on the market still compete in the same broad labor market made up mainly of private sector jobs, which means that the law of supply and demand keeps our wages in line with the exploitative rates in the private sector. Very few people live off of their investments. Most people live through selling our labor as a commodity on the labor market. So the vast majority of society are the victims of the society which has to keep us exploited most of the time to ensure profits and economic health for the system as a whole. Now, even though some capitalist countries, including our own, have elements of democracy, one through the struggles of working people over centuries, it still doesn't add up to full democracy, which in Greek literally means rule of the people. Well, instead of rule of the people, 
know, we have elements of democracy which working people must constantly fight to defend and expand. For example, with the attacks on voting rights today. But what we really have at the end of the day is rule of the tiny minority that owns the wealth that we all create together and on which we all depend for survival. In order for a tiny minority to rule, the majority must be kept divided, distracted, and disempowered. But sometimes that breaks down and people start to organize and rise up. And that is when force has to be used against us. And police forces are the modern capitalist organizations instituted precisely to keep the majority of us working and to put us down when we rise up. Many police forces in existence today, for example, the Ferguson, Missouri police who murdered Michael Brown in 2014 and were exposed for widespread predatory traffic ticketing practices to fund the St. Louis city budget on the backs of those in the middle-class black Ferguson neighborhood. Many such police forces began as slave patrols their job as slave patrols was twofold. One, round up runaway slave workers to be returned for labor on the plantations. And two, put down with violence any feared collective uprising by the slaves. Other police forces began in the 19th century in northern industrial cities. And there, a key function was to violently break strikes prevent outdoor union rallies, infiltrate and spy on workers trying to organize, and persecute militant working class groups like socialists or anarchists. The first nationwide movement for the eight-hour day centered in 1886 in Chicago was broken when police attacked and framed its leaders, who were hanged and became internationally famous as the Haymarket Martyrs and the inspiration for the May 1st International Workers' Day holiday. Another example, in 1934, the general strikes in San Francisco, Minneapolis, and Toledo all had members killed from police attacks on the picket lines. But it was only because workers in all three of those cities organized to fight back and defeat the police in the streets that these strikes ended up winning. And since those three general strike victories are what pressured the federal government to pass the Social Security Act and the Wagner Act the next year, in the middle of the Great Depression of all times, it can actually be said that the reason we have both Social Security and the right to vote for unions is because unions in 1934 won street fights against police. Today, police continue to be used against picket lines. They were sent against the Occupy movement and the Wisconsin Capitol occupation in 2011, and they were repeatedly used unnecessary violence against racial justice protesters in the last year, including right here in La Mesa. But even when we're not trying to rise up, police keep us afraid to try, as well as keeping us as a class divided. The profit system benefits when there are underserved areas with mass poverty and unemployment, because this allows employers to threaten other workers with replacement 
from the large army of desperate workers who have to live in these areas. And this keeps a lid on the wages of those that they haven't yet managed to beat down as much yet. Police violence up to and including killings keeps people in these areas afraid to take risks, such as organizing. Then mass incarceration from these neighborhoods creates a large population under criminal supervision, unable to work in most good paying jobs and temporarily or permanently without voting or other civil rights. This is one factor keeping the historic racial neighborhood segregation going strong in the United States even though housing discrimination is today technically illegal. At one time, city police forces would channel socially destructive organized crime activities into black and brown neighborhoods in order to move them out of non-working class white neighborhoods. Today, their war on crime and war on drugs policies keep those same neighborhoods fearful, impoverished, segregated uniquely vicious U.S. division in the working class has helped keep the entire U.S. working class uniquely non-union compared to other rich countries, uniquely without free health care, and uniquely low-paid and high-taxed. Finally, though, aren't police workers themselves? Well, it's true, cops usually come from working class backgrounds and most of them, just like us, can be hired and fired, but they can't hire or fire anyone else. And that's what makes you a worker. Not how much money you make, but whether you have power over anyone else at work. That's why police have unions. Though in reality, many police unions are not really unions. They're called unions, but they're not really workers' organizations because they don't organize against the police chiefs, but instead they include the police chiefs. It would be like if we had our agency directors or members of the board of supervisors in the same union with us. But at least some police unions are real unions, though others are not. And overall, cops, we have to admit, are workers. Cops are, in fact, that section of the working class that is paid by the ruling class to keep our whole class down. So while they may be workers, their structural role makes them enemies of the workers' movement to the labor movement to our unions. They are the enforcers of the unjust system we have to fight. And that's why police get better pay and benefits than other government workers without ever having to strike. Police strikes like the 1919 one in Boston have happened, but they are extremely rare and mostly not allowed by law. But again, they don't need to because local governments want them well paid because they are the hired muscle that they and the ruling class depend on. And favoring them is part of how they get these police to be reliable enemies of the rest of their fellow workers. Local 221 County workers recently saw this in negotiations for hazard pay, in which the county devoted more than half of the money devoted to hazard pay to the Sheriff Deputies Association. Amazingly, that association didn't even bother to negotiate. Yet it was granted a disproportionate share of the funds. Supporting law enforcement unions based on the usual idea that we talk about in labor history talks that's 
what's good for any group of workers is good for all groups of workers. That's usually right, but it's wrong in the case of police unions because local governments favor those unions at our expense. And more money for police in their departments means more money and weaponry to keep oppressed and working people down. The large sums of money used to buy police loyalty against us could instead be used to fund desperately needed social programs and compensation for other government workers. Local 221 in that sense was right when we recently called for defunding the sheriffs to better fund health care and food service in the jails. Of course, many people become cops with good intentions. But police forces have notoriously high turnover because those with good intentions often find it very difficult to stay because police are expected to defend each other, not to speak up about the abuse and wrongdoing that inevitably happens. And police have always been, not everyone, but overwhelmingly conservative, sharing the right wing and Republican political preferences of the super rich. And that's historically the opposite of the working class as a whole, which has been, and even today still is, the social base for the Democrats, liberalism, progressives, socialists, communists, etc. Although, of course, some ordinary workers have always been conservative, too. Donald Trump, early in his 2016 campaign, began courting the police. His evil white nationalism has predictably found its most consistent and fervent support among all kinds of cops, including city police, prison guards, and ICE agents. It is therefore not a violation of solidarity, but an essential duty of solidarity for us not to side with police unions. It's no accident that the reckless Trump-supporting new president of the California State Employees Union, SEIU Local 1000, a man named Richard Lewis Brown, he represents thousands of prison guards. It may be complicated to get there, but we should work toward a divorce between cops and other workers inside Local 1000. We should follow the lead of unions like UAW Local 2865, which voted to recommend removing police unions from the AFL-CIO. In fact, for the most part, police unions already stand very much apart from other unions. They support opposite politicians. They have no need to strike, and they stay out of local labor councils. No local police or sheriff unions hold seats on the San Diego Imperial County's Labor Council, for example. But clarifying and deepening that separation clears the way for a fuller unity between our labor movement and the most powerful social movement of our day, Black Lives Matter. And unity with the Black freedom struggle has been the single biggest key to the U.S. labor movement's success or failure historically. So that's police. That's most, that's two thirds of the talk. I'm gonna move on now to shed some light on it by talking about soldiers, which are a different situation. The U.S. is the world's biggest capitalist country, and its corporations require the biggest possible share that they can get in the world market. Trade agreements and foreign investment contracts depend on having spheres of influence, and that's why the U.S., the European Union, China, and a few others play an international game of chess 
that they call, quote, foreign policy. This chess match is really a competitive struggle for markets. Wars, of course, ultimately decide who wins these struggles, and that is the real-life function of the U.S. military. Soldiers may join to defend the country, to defend their families, and defend their people. But as many of them come to realize, they end up killing, invading, and occupying other people who pose no threat to anyone in the U.S., but who are unfortunate enough to live where the global chess game between the superpowers plays out. Soldiers like police are indoctrinated with conservative, colonialist, racist, and imperialist prejudices to justify their orders. They tend to be conservative. And it's illegal for soldiers to form any unions whatsoever, unlike the police. Yet, soldiers are very, very different from cops. Police see themselves as enforcing the rules. And for, those, for us, those are the rules of a structurally unfair society organized to exploit us. And police know what the laws are before they join. But soldiers see their mission as defending their people. When that turns out not to be true, working class soldiers and the mass of soldiers are overwhelmingly working class and disproportionately people of color sooner or later, see that their mission is really about defending the international power and privileges of the rich. Sometimes even a general can see this. And Victor recently reminded me of the most celebrated member of the Marine Corps, looked up to by the Marines to this day, General Smedley Butler. Butler came from an elite family at the turn of the century, and he was such a uh, well-regarded soldier. He actually got two Congressional Medals of Honor. But he was disgusted by the violence that General MacArthur's 12th Infantry and 3rd Cavalry Regiments used against the Bonus Army. The Bonus Army was 43,000 veterans who marched on Washington in 1932 to demand payments they were owed. And Seeing that, Butler began to question the real purpose of the military. He later wrote this, quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. He goes on to talk about Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, Honduras, China. Looking back on it, he said, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. In 1936, Butler voted not for Republican or Democrat for president, but the socialist candidate Norman Thomas, because he had come to these understandings. But if Smedley Butler is an exception to the rule for the ruling class, which he was part of, working class soldiers can reach these conclusions on a mass level. And people don't know about this, but after Japan's surrender in 1945, Navy soldiers became increasingly concerned that they weren't being sent back home, but instead were continued to occupy island nations they had liberated from Japan. They started writing up some leaflets, one of which read, quote, the State Department 
wants the army to back up its imperialism. So it was 1945 and unions were at their height. Many of these soldiers had been in the brand new CIO unions just before the war. So they got in touch with their unions. And the GIs held a series of demonstrations of up to 20,000 people in Manila, Luzon, Hawaii, Guam, and Yokohama. They complained that troops were being readied for use as scabs in a railroad strike in the Philippines. The rallies denounced occupation and pointed out that the U.S. was supporting right-wing dictators in places like Korea, rather than democratic and independent states. The National Maritime Union joined the soldiers' demonstrations and called for a one-day strike in the Pacific. AFL President William Green joined the calls for early demobilization of the soldiers, bring the boys home. These risky soldier worker actions paid off as the military soon issued the orders to speed up demobilization. Now, all this didn't stop the U.S. from becoming the new Pacific imperialist, but it did make it more difficult to accomplish. Moving on, my old friend Mike Squirrel was a soldier in Vietnam. I met him because we were both doing social work with homeless people in the 1990s. He himself was focused on veterans. And Mike told me amazing stories about his time in Vietnam. He talked about seeing propaganda posters aimed at black soldiers like himself from the Vietnamese Liberation Forces that said, quote, brother, we never called you N-word. Mike said, wow, that really made you think. When Mike's commander ordered him to go out on one final patrol before his discharge, he sat down with him and told him he simply wasn't going to do it. He no longer believed the U.S. was on the right side, and he was certain that he would get killed for no good reason if he did that final mission. And believe it or not, the commander just let him slide. If that seems amazing to anyone around the military, the context is the reason because Vietnam soldiers at that very time were massively revolting against the command. The military's own records have over 800 officers killed by their own soldiers, basically for being too gung-ho. They called it fragging. If an officer wouldn't listen to reason and let the troops avoid endless pointless battles, a fragmentation grenade would be rolled under their bed at night. Socialists and other soldiers influenced by the anti-war and black freedom struggles of the time produced dozens of anti-war GI newsletters, which names like Harass the Brass and Star Spangled Bummer. Sailors on board the USS Coral Sea, which was docked right here in San Diego, collectively refused orders to take the ship out for Vietnam to Vietnam with support from the local anti-war movement. According to a 1972 report by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, U.S. forces in Vietnam were in a state of command breakdown, unrivaled in history, except for the Tsar's troops in the 1917 revolution in Russia, who switched sides to join the revolution. Stateside, at a Vietnam Veterans Against the War rally in April 1971, 2,000 soldiers gathered at the Capitol building to throw their medals back. And now I'm going to turn it over to Victor to show us a clip from a film at the time called FTA, which stands for F the Army, about a concert held by anti-war activists and actors in Vietnam 
for the soldiers in Vietnam. And uh, are you ready to do that, um, Victor? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll need to uh, test sharing the screen and I need to know if everyone can hear it. But um, I chose this uh, specific clip um, because I wanted to end this talk with a reminder of a time at which being anti-war and being anti-imperialist didn't mean that we could not embrace soldiers as our fellows. Um, my hope is that we can find that sentiment today. And you can find this movie on Netflix. Hello. I'd like to sing a song about a young black soldier who refused his orders to kill in Vietnam. Uh, he was placed in the stockade and he gave an interview to the press. And among his reasons for doing this, he said that um, he thought the war in Vietnam was a, an American war of aggression. He thought it was a racist and genocidal war. He said he doubted very much if America could bring equality and democracy to the yellow people of Vietnam when it never brought equality and democracy to the black, brown, red, and yellow people of America. And he thought that um, before we begin to preach and leave our country and spread the word, that we better clean up our own mess at home. And this song is called Soldier We Love You. I read that you took a stand and refused to kill in Vietnam. You said no man was your enemy. If what he's fighting for is to be free. Get old streets, lead nowhere, and get old cries fill the air. Uncle Sam's in Nam to loot and rob. People stop at home cause there's no jobs. Oh, ain't it hard to smile sometimes? I know it's hard to smile sometimes. But soldier, we love you. Say we're not going in any 
Okay, thanks, Victor. That's so moving to see tens of thousands of soldiers. That concert took place in Vietnam during the war, and everyone in attendance there is an active soldier. Tens of thousands of people in that stadium. Even in the era of the all-volunteer force, though, because today it's an all-volunteer army, organizations like Iraq Veterans Against the War and several prominent war resistors like U.S. Sailor Pablo Paredes here in San Diego took brave actions against what they believed a war for oil and empire in Iraq, fueling widespread opposition to that war. Internationally, we see the same pattern. When working people rise up, the police almost always have to be defeated for the workers to win or for a revolution to win. The military really generally can't be beaten. People in the streets, working people in the streets can't beat the army, but the military can change sides, which has happened many times in history. In fact, there would really be no successful revolutions if working class soldiers could not be turned to side with their own class against the ruling command and the state. We saw this in Egypt in 2011, for example, when millions of protesters in Tahrir Square organized themselves to defeat the police so they could keep occupying the square. Then the army was the only force left to take them on. But the generals feared that the rank and file soldiers would change sides if they tried to send them in against their brothers and sisters in the square. So the generals instead told President Mubarak, the dictator, that he had to step down, and that's when he did step down. One last example, and this finishes my talk. In 1919, all the unions in Seattle went on a general strike together. The unions began running the city, since the official government was powerless without the ability to command labor. How did the strikers organize security? Well, the police wouldn't help them. The police fled the city during the general strike. So what the unions did was they hired recently returned World War I veterans to do unarmed street patrols and security, keeping things even more peaceful than usual during the several days of the strike. And that's a good example of the usual difference between police and soldiers when it comes to the labor movement. <laughs> 